Right, 9.30, good morning, how are you? Is it still raining outside? All right, way to brave the rain. It's good to see you all. If you got a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five is where we're gonna be today. Uh, let me say welcome to those watching at home as well. Uh, just a reminder for you all, communion as part of our worship today, so if you didn't grab elements, on your way in, feel free to jump up at any point. We've got some in the back, and friends at home, uh, you might want to you know, hit the pause button or just as I'm talking here, run to the kitchen, grab some elements so you can join us in the Lord's Supper today as part of our worship. Well, just before I dive in, we are doing a little departure today. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. We're gonna do a two-week break from that series and then return to it because we wanna spend some time reflecting as we come up to Easter now, Palm Sunday, and then Easter, reflecting on a little bit uh, of what the, what the cross means for us, why we believe in the cross, why we believe in the resurrection. So we'll do that in just a moment. But a couple reminders for you, just before we get going. Number one is that as we enter Holy Week, George reminded us today is Palm Sunday. This Friday, we will have our Good Friday service at 6.30, so just wanted to remind you about that so you can be preparing for it. We'll come together and reflect on the sufferings of Christ together. And it's always a deeply reflective service, but a deeply meaningful one. If you've never joined us for that, I just wanna invite you to come and join us Friday at 6.30 for our Good Friday service. And then uh, for Easter, we will gather next Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together. And we're gonna do that not at our normal times at 8, 9.30, and 11.15, but one service at 10 o'clock. And let's pray the weather is better next week than it is today. Looks good right now. But the plan is 10 a.m., gather outside for worship together. Uh, and so I hope you're making plans to be there. And I will say, because the weather reminds me of this, we would love for you this week to go ahead and register for a service because we will come inside if there is weather. And so it would be great if you'd go ahead and register like your normal week, plan, to, plan for that, and then, but then remember that we're, the plan is 10 o'clock outside. So we're kind of like registering in the event of an emergency, so to speak, if you will. Fair enough? All right, awesome. Really, true, you good? All right, good, all right, just making sure we're all awake, all right. Let's do this, let me pray, and then we're gonna dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that now as we come to this season of the year, we get to pause, and every week, Lord Jesus, we are thinking about your cross, but perhaps in a, in a very pointed way today, would you remind us why we believe? Would you remind us again afresh and anew what is reasonable about our belief and also what is compelling? Uh, refresh us in that, maybe grant new insights even as we continue to want to learn and grow in you. And now, Lord, we come as servants to you and uh, in submission to your word, which we believe you have given to us is without error and now has been given us so that we might know how to live life with godliness. All that we need, we find in it. It is sufficient. And so we trust now that you will teach and instruct us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, so uh, just south of Dallas, about an hour south of Dallas, there's a little town called Italy, Texas, and you should definitely plan vacation there because it's just like the Italy that's in Europe. <laughs> so it's about an hour south, and the only outstanding thing about Italy, Texas is, is this. I'll show you a picture of it. It's the monolithic dome caterpillar. Now, I'll tell you why I got the Goodyear blimp there in a second, but you see the monolithic dome caterpillar. There's actually a community of these homes that are built in these domes, and I think they're supposed to be like energy efficient or something. I, I don't know a lot about them. But right along the side of I-35, the major highway that runs north to south through the state of Texas, there is this caterpillar of these domes that they've painted and put cowboy boots on. I don't know if you can see those or not, but they've put the antenna. 
And it's this cute little thing that as you're driving through Italy, everybody knows about it. If you say Italy, Texas to someone and they've driven through it, they'll be like, oh, the, the caterpillar thing. And you'd be like, yeah, yeah, the caterpillar thing. It's right off the side of the highway. So years ago, I was driving down the highway with a friend, Charlotte Blakely, who is just sweet, sweet, sweet. Right? Well, by the way, that's, that's kind of like saying bless your heart. If someone from the South says bless your heart, the next thing out of their mouth is not going to be kind about whatever they're going to say about it. That's just a little heads up for you. But Charlotte is super sweet, right? And we're driving down the highway, and we come across the, the caterpillar. And I said, that is just the most interesting thing. Like, why do you think, I mean, that is, like, why did they do that? Why is it there? I asked some question along those lines. And she says, well, it's because they keep the Goodyear blimp there. And I, now look at the picture of the blimp and tell me what's wrong with that idea. And I said, I said, wait, what? And the second I said what, she, she sensed my skepticism and she went, oh yeah, my dad used to joke when I was young that that's where they kept the Goodyear blimp. In Italy, Texas, this is where they store the Goodyear blimp when it's not flying over the Super Bowl, right? And I said, no, no, no. You believed until two seconds ago that the Goodyear blimp was in there and she's like, she turned bright red. She's like, I did, I did. And bless her heart. <laughs> here's the, here's why I, I always think about that. Because I, the thing that you and I need to recognize as Christians is that in the same way that, you know, Charlotte had a, a, a sweetly naive belief that the Goodyear blimp was stored in Italy, Texas in the monolithic dome caterpillar. In the same way that she believes that, the world thinks about our belief in the cross of Jesus and what it can do for us in the same way. Often it is at best a sweetly naive sort of a thing. Because when we say, why do we believe in the cross of Jesus? I want you to know, what I want to get at today is not the historicity of that event. There's really no good historian any longer that would argue that the cross wasn't an actual event in history. That there wasn't a man named Jesus who died on a cross under Roman power and, and government. There's really no one that makes that argument anymore other than on the fringes uh, of kind of academia. But the, by and large, the perspective is that when we say the cross can do something for us. So when I say, why do we believe in the cross? What I want to remind us of today is why do we believe, not that it happened, but why do we believe it can do what we say it can do? Which is namely that it can reconcile us to God. That, that another human being's death can do something internally and eternally for other people. And I want you to recognize that for the world, that's a sort of sweetly naive sort of perception of the way things work. And for a variety of reasons, depending on the perspective. And so what I want to remind us of today, and, and I recognize there's always two audiences here when we, when we gather. One of, is many of you, most of you are believers in Jesus. And as such, you believe that the cross has reconciled you to God the Father, that it's done something internally and eternally for you. And for you, my hope is that, that I might remind you or perhaps help you see for the first time some of the reason why you believe, not just the reasons sort of in apologetic terms, now, not just the reasonableness, although I do want to speak to that, the reasonableness of believing in that reality, but also what is compelling about that reality. What, what compelled you? Ultimately, I would argue uh, that reason creates a, a wonderful foundation for faith, but no one comes, or very few people, come to faith purely because you can argue them into that logic. Most of us come to faith because we found something compelling. We built upon reason, 
No doubt about it. But within that reason, there was something more, something beyond, something that stretched a little bit beyond it that caused us to see the cross of Jesus as compelling. And for those of you who don't believe, I, I always know that there's some, uh, some of you are, are, are hanging out with us and maybe you're investigating some of your, some of your skepticism. And man, I'm so glad that you are. It's the right place to be. But as you are, I hope you can just kind of listen in now and perhaps recognize, maybe again for the first time, some of why those who, who believe in this thing called the cross and that it can do what we say it can do, that there's some real reasonableness to that, but there's also something very compelling about it. I just wanna show you three of those things today. It's by no means exhaustive. Uh, and recognize, friends, we cannot prove supernatural things by definition, things that go beyond nature. They can't be tested for. They can't be proved. I cannot prove to you the cross can reconcile you to God the Father. I can't prove that for you. But there are some very reasonable reasons uh, to believe that as well as there's something very compelling about it. And I just wanna speak to those realities today. All right, fair enough, you with me? All right, so that's where we're headed today. So Romans chapter five, uh, verse six says that. Now before we, we get there though, let me remind you of what First Peter chapter three, verse 15 says. And it speaks to this idea of both reasonableness and compelling, you know, compellingness. First Peter in, in chapter three, verse 15 says this. says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, now get this, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now a few weeks ago when we talked about meekness, we were talking about this idea, this very text, I'm talking about gentleness and respect in the way that we defend the faith. But one of the things I want you to recognize is probably what's most, what should be highlighted most in that text is not the idea that what we, what we sometimes do when we talk about that text is we say, okay, this means be able to defend the faith, be able to speak apologetics, be able to understand and explain why it's reasonable. And that's certainly part of it. But there's a reason why Peter is writing, and he doesn't say what we might expect. When you hear the word defense, be prepared to make a defense, what do you expect to be defending? What do you expect to be the next word? I tend to expect it to be the truth, or be, you know, so be prepared to make a defense for the truth. Be able to make a defense for what you believe. Be able to make a defense for something in that realm of the sort of logical and reasonable. But that's not what Peter says. The most interesting thing about this text is that he says, be prepared to make a defense for what? For hope. Be prepared to make a defense for hope. You can't prove hope. Hope is a state of mind and heart. It's a disposition that you possess to believe that there are good things yet to come. Right, And so when we talk about hope and defending hope, do you get to what Peter is saying is you, follower of Jesus, as you think about the cross of Jesus, as you think about the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll talk about obviously next week on Easter Sunday, as you think about that, think about not just its reasonableness, but what is compelling about it. That's what he's saying. He says, be prepared to defend your hope. He's, he's saying, be able to defend its reasonableness and also be able to speak to why it compels you. And today, I hope that I can take you back a little bit to that. You who are followers of Jesus, take you back a little bit to, why did you believe in the first place? What brought you to this place where you thought the cross of Jesus could reconcile you to God the Father? The first of the, here's the first reason I wanna speak to, and it's this, is that Jesus is unique. Jesus is unique. And let's make sure that we use that term in the right way because we often use it uh, not as we should use it. We use it to mean rare. When we say someone is unique or something is unique, usually what we're saying is that thing is rare. 
But do you understand that unique doesn't mean rare? Unique means standing alone. There is no one else like him. When we say Jesus is unique, we mean he literally stands alone. Not he's rare, there's only a few like him. We mean there's no one like him. That he is completely unique among all people who have ever walked the face of the planet. And that's really the first reason. When, if you were to probably, if you're not a believer and you were to just go one by one and survey each of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, my guess is that most, you would, most of what you would hear is not, well, I, I saw this reason or that reason. You would find a lot of people talking about how just seeing who Jesus was compelled them to believe that when they encountered him on the cross and his life leading up to the cross, they saw someone completely unique from anything else or anyone else they'd ever encountered. How many of you say amen to that? It's him that compels us. Above all things, above all other reason, above all other logic, it's him in his personhood that compels us. I remember being five years old and having, one of, having a, 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 a storybook Bible. that had, It was a picture Bible and flipping through the pictures, and kind of being able to read some of the story. And I remember at a very young age, without much knowledge of anything other than kind of what I was picking up in Sunday school class, I remember encountering Jesus and saying, he's different. That's my first thought I remember about Jesus. I remember looking at the stories, reading about him healing people, reading about him walking on water, reading about him doing this thing or that thing. And, and I remember just thinking, there's no one like this. Now, again, I hadn't taken a course in comparative religion or anything, but I was pretty sure at five years old there was no one else like this person, that he stood out. And the first thing that compels us to believe that the cross of Jesus can reconcile us to God the Father is the uniqueness of Jesus himself. Now, let me, let me highlight two parts of his uniqueness. The first is his love, and the second is his power. Look at what this text says, Romans 5, 6 through 10. Let me read it for you. It says, for a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. There's that word, reconciled, to God, by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. <coughs> so friends, what I want you to see here is that in Romans, Paul is writing and he's saying, he's making this very claim that we're making, that the, the cross of Jesus can reconcile us to God the Father. That's what verse 10 is saying. Did you catch that there? We have been reconciled to God by the death of his son. And the motivation for that we found in verse eight, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what was, the, what was that demonstrating, according to the beginning of that verse? But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We could just keep repeating that. I could just spend the next 30 minutes repeating that, and that, would be, that could be the sermon. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the demonstration of God's love. It was the demonstration of Jesus' love. Listen, Jesus loves in a completely unique way. Jesus loves traitors to their country like Matthew and Zacchaeus who were stealing money and, and betraying their fellow countrymen 
And Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. He receives them in love in spite of them being people that no one, no one in their country would love. He loves invading army commanders like the Roman centurion who he said, I haven't seen greater faith like this in anyone in my own country. And he honors him, receives him. He loves people like the woman who bends down to wash his feet and the Pharisees are there and what, what do they say? He can't be a prophet. If he was a prophet, he would know that this woman who's touching him is a sinner. She is, she is full of despicableness. She's horrible, she's awful, she's immoral. If Jesus knew who she was, there's no way he'd let her touch him and Jesus knows exactly who she is. He says, come, I receive you. He loves the woman at the well, a Samaritan, enemy to the people of Israel, who's rifled through husband after husband. His disciples say, why are you talking to her? He says, this is why I came. I came for her. No one loves the way Jesus loves. Now, here, here's the thing. Because up to that point, I mean, I find that incredibly compelling. But there's lots of people who love immoral people. But most of the time, the way people love immoral people is by rounding off the sharp edges of truth and pretending like their immorality is not a problem. That's the way most people love immoral people because when we call out immorality, people tend to not want to be around us anymore. I mean, you've probably done that yourself. Someone's called you out on your immorality and you've probably broken a relationship with them. Been like, I don't wanna, mm -mm, I'm, not, I'm not talking with you anymore. Yeah? That's what we do. Here's the amazingness of Jesus' love. He doesn't round off the sharp edges of truth for a single second, and yet his love is so compelling, the worst people of his day and age seem to want to be near him. Everywhere he goes, he attracts the least and the worst. Those whose society has rejected, those whom reputable people have said, no, 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 they shall not be with us. And those are the exact people that seem to flock to Jesus. And never once does Jesus say, oh, your immorality is not a problem. At every turn, he says, this is truth, this is righteousness, and yet his love compels. Are you, isn't that astounding? It astounds me every time. Oh, to love like that. To love people like that, to be marked by that kind of love, to never for one second round off a sharp edge of truth, but to let it be what it is, to speak it, but to be so full of love, so full of receiving those in need of the love of God in Christ Jesus, to be so enamored with him and to see so clearly that he came for the lost to seek and to save them, and that that was me, and he saved me. And now to know what a joy to turn around and say, he found me. He's coming for you. He is here for you. Ultimately, that's love that compels, yes? The second thing that I always find astounding about the uniqueness of Jesus that causes me to believe in his cross and, and what it can do, I mean, what it can truly do to reconcile us to the Father is his power. 
we could go through the attributes of Jesus, but we're just gonna think about his love and his power. Whenever I think about the power of Jesus, I, I tend to go to Matthew chapter eight and Jesus in, in the boat with the disciples and the storm. Are you guys familiar with the story? If you're not, maybe if you're new to the Bible and you're not familiar with it, the, the disciples, who many of whom are fishermen, so they're, not, they're, they're professionals on water. They are not scared by a little storm. And yet they are caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee and they are overwhelmed. Now listen, I used to think when I would read that story, and let's be honest for a minute, how many of you read that and you kind of, you're like, I mean, they're kind of being a little wimpy, right? I used to think that and then I went with some friends out on Lake Erie, which is at one of the Great Lakes, and I'm telling you, in a matter of five minutes, so it has a little bit of an ocean feel because it's this big body of water. It's a beautiful, clear day. The sun is shining, and within five minutes, there's a dark cloud on the horizon, and it is on us. And, uh, and I'm talking about the waves. Now, the guy who's uh, our friend Peter, who is steering, <laughs> Peter, who's steering the boat, it, it never occurred to me until just now. He's steering the boat, and he's a good sailor, and he's steering into some of these waves that are coming up. And I'm talking about, and just like the Bible says, the waves are coming into the boat. The waves are coming into the boat. And we got like a six and an eight-year-old with us, and I'm, I'm, I've got my hand, I'm like, I'm grabbing them. I'm like, I got you. I, we're all going in, you know? And I'm scared. I'm legitimately scared. And in that moment, I, think, I thought to myself, I said, Lord, I repent for thinking bad of the disciples. Because I am afraid right now. And the disciples were afraid. Remember Jesus is sleeping and they go to him and they say, do you not care that we're all about to die? And Jesus wakes up and he says, where's, where's your faith? I don't know the tone with which he said it. But he says, where's your faith? And then he says to the waves, what? Be still. And what happens? They obey. <laughs> the nature obeys. Have you tried talking to nature before? Stop raining. <laughs> Somebody check and see what happened. Nothing happened. I was driving in the car with Deacon the other day, taking him to school, and we were listening to a song, and one of the lyrics in the song was, he walks on the water, he speaks to the sea. And I heard G, uh, Deacon in the back seat, he just kind of repeated it. He said, he speaks to the sea. Deacon's five. Uh, and he said, he speaks to the sea. I said, who speaks to the sea, bud? And he said, Jesus. I said, yeah, that's right. I said, what did he say? He said, be still. I said, uh-huh. I said, what happened? He said, it was still. He said, the ocean stopped. I said, that's right. And then I was like, let's see what he says. I'll ask one more. I said, why did it stop? Because Jesus made it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. He was like, because Jesus made it. I was like, donuts, whatever you want, you're good. <laughs> A five-year-old can see the power of Jesus. You don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to be old or smart you don't have to be anything. Five-year-old can see the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Listen, it's not hard to believe that the cross can accomplish something for me internally and eternally when I see that kind of power on display. When he can speak to the waves and they are silent. 
not they kind of calmed down gradually. Maybe the wind kind of lowered itself. No, be still. And they are still. All of nature obeys him because he is the creator. Now what does all that point us to? The love of Christ, the unique love of Christ, the power of Christ, the unique power of Christ. It points to the fact that he is God. He is God. And all of our hope rests on this fact because if he's man, he's like us and he has to die for his own sins. But because he is God, the one who controls the wind and the waves, we understand that his death can count for you and count for me. It's not a big leap to make to say the one who controls the wind is God and he also then can pay a penalty for me that I could not pay for myself. That's why we believe The cross can do what we say it can do, reconcile us to God the Father. Yes, church? Let me show you two more things as we uh, continue to prepare ourselves to come to communion table. So the second reason we believe the cross can do what we say it can do, that it can reconcile us to God the Father, is because the cross of Jesus is the best answer to the problem that we see in the world. The cross of Jesus is the best answer to the problem that we see in the world. So there's a bit of reverse engineering here, okay? Look at chapter five, verse six. In verse six says, for while we were still weak, that's how, the, that's how this section, this paragraph opens up. For while we were still weak. Now do you get that what Paul is talking about there is not physical weakness, but spiritual weakness. He's saying you were weak in the sense that you could not do anything about your depravity, about your sin, about your immorality. There's nothing you could do. Now take that problem for the individual person to whom this text speaks and extrapolate that across all people and all time and you recognize that we've got a big problem because where spiritual weakness exists in the hearts of humans and that's writ large over every human that's ever existed, we have a reason then for all the evil and all the brokenness that we see in the world, yes? For all the evil and all the brokenness that we see in the world and here's one of the beauties of the cross of Jesus. It both doesn't minimize that evil, but also, so it, it, call, it identifies it for its absolute enormity, for what it really is, for what a huge problem it truly is. It doesn't minimize that, but it also offers hope in spite of how big it shows the problem to be. It both shows the problem to be massive and offers a solution that's equally massive. That's what the cross of Jesus does. And the way we kind of think about that then in reverse would be this, right? One of the reasons I am compelled to believe that the cross of Jesus can reconcile me to God the Father is that I look around the world and I see a massive problem. I see evil and its effects everywhere. I see a broken world. And I see that human beings are primarily responsible for ushering that in. I see that we are the ones performing that evil. And so the answer The the question that comes up is, well, where does it come from? Why is it there? And if we start, now I know this is in reverse, if I start with the idea that the cross is God's son sacrificing himself to deal with that, it makes a lot more sense. I have an answer now that makes sense in terms of where evil comes from. And I don't just have a minimization, uh, minimization of the problem, but I also, I also have a solution for it. Now, let me state it this way. In a secular worldview, most often, and if, if this is your worldview, you can critique me and see if I'm being fair here, okay? In a secular worldview, most often I hear a humanistic approach, which is to say that human beings are basically good. Human beings are basically good. 
here's the challenge. If human beings are basically good, where does all the evil in the world come from? How did we turn from good to evil? Where is it just some that do it? And how do we deal with that problem? And again, see if you find this to be a fair critique. The solution that a secular worldview offers for evil in the world and all its effects, I find to be very wanting, very lacking, because here's the solution. It's to rationalize or to relativize evil itself. It's to say evil is a category that some people, you know, these people determine over here and these people determine over here. It's all relative. So who's to say what is moral and what is immoral? Can I just offer, that's, a, that's like putting on a sweater your grandma gives you at Christmas that's two sizes too small. It just doesn't fit. At the end of the day, you're gonna be dissatisfied. You're gonna be constrained because it doesn't offer any kind of a real, true answer in the face of actual evil that hurts you. When it comes for you, I promise you, I promise you, when it has its effect on you and that brokenness comes to you, you're not gonna be satisfied with the simple answer of, well, who are you to say that's actually immoral? Who are you to say that's actually evil? All it does is minimize the problem. And I think that's a, if that's your worldview, I just wanna say to you, I think you've gotta really think that through. There's some real challenges to a secular worldview that starts from that, from that point. But here's the beauty of the cross. As I said, it both makes sense of all the evil and wickedness in the world because it treats it as real. That it really is there and it really is a problem because if this is the solution, then this must really be real because it requires this kind of a solution. But not only that, the solution is not just to eradicate it. The solution is to deal with it in such a way that you and I can still be received by God in spite of being those responsible for it. That's compelling. When I look at the cross of Jesus, I see a solution, a big solution to a big problem, and it compels me. The third thing that we want to reflect on today, and again, by no means is exhaustive. Third thing I want to reflect on today, why we believe the cross of Jesus can reconcile us to God the Father is because it makes sense out of all of human history. It brings or ties together all of human history. Look at this one phrase in chapter five, verse six. After it says, for while we were still weak, then it says, at the right time, at the right time, Christ died. Now, what does that one simple phrase, at the right time, communicate? It communicates a world of things. It communicates that there's a plan, there's a timeliness to that plan, and Jesus came as the pinnacle of that plan at the perfect time. Not too early, not too late, at the right time. You may not have recognized that those, those couple little words are communicating something massive. And what it's communicating is that God has a plan that he's working out throughout all of human history, that he has a purpose, and that there's a, there's a, there's a unifying theme within that plan. And that unifying theme is that God is glorifying himself by reconciling people to himself. Redemption is the theme. Redemption is the theme of the story. Now here's the beauty. If Christ comes at just the right time, then what that tells us is that his death as the pinnacle of the whole story of human existence makes everything before it make sense as pointing towards it. Whether it was something that needed to be redeemed or something that talked about the redemption that would come, and it makes sense of everything that comes after it, pointing back to it and saying, this is what God has done. 
and it then links to all that is yet to come and what will be. And it makes sense out of all of it. It makes what could be the story of human history a bunch of random events across time and space which have no relationship to one another other than random cause and effect. Rather than that, we see that God speaks through the cross that there is one plan being worked across all of history. And your life and my life fit into that plan. And as a result, then the cross doesn't just make sense of all of human history, it makes sense of my life. Because it makes my life fit into that plan. It gives me a purpose and an identity from which to live. Isn't that amazing? The cross of Jesus says your life has a purpose. Let me just say that again, because some of you may have been in these days, maybe you're wrestling with depression, maybe you're wrestling with just a dark night sort of a season. Can I say to you again, the cross of Jesus says your life has purpose. Your life has a purpose to glorify God by being redeemed, to come into that redemptive work of Christ. He offers it to you and then to become an ambassador for that redeeming work. To say, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, to be ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation, that God reconciled the world, those who believe, to himself through the cross of his son Jesus, and in doing that then made all those who are reconciled ministers of reconciliation. Your life has a purpose, and that's it. It's not complicated or complex, it's not confusing, it's not, it's not meant to be a big mystery. There's a lot of ways that gets played out and some of that is a mystery, yes? Like what should my job be? Who should I marry? All these things that get played out. Yes, those can be mysterious, right? And we walk with God in, in understanding how and what steps to take. But at the end of the day, do you know, the ultimate big picture is not supposed to be confusing and it's not a mystery. You have been created to live for the purpose for which all of human history exists, which is to glorify God by being a minister of reconciliation, by being reconciled and by being a minister of reconciliation. All the rest is the details of how that gets played out. I find that incredibly compelling. The cross of Jesus compels me, not just because of his uniqueness, yes. The cross of Jesus compels me, not just because it makes sense of a big problem and offers a big solution, but it compels me also because I see in it a purpose for all of history and for me and for you. Friends, we're gonna come to the table now and as we've talked about the cross, now we get to reflect on the cross together today by taking these elements and I'm gonna give you a moment to pause and just be before the Lord because there's two things the scriptures instruct us in always when we think about coming to the Lord's table. The first of those is that this table is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. And so I, I, I say this every time, I wanna say it again, that for our friends who are with us who are skeptical or investigating, examining, wherever you may be, uh, we're gonna invite you to let these elements pass because if you haven't believed, we, we don't want you to proclaim that belief in any kind of a false way. We'd want you to come in sincerity uh, to the Lord and be reconciled to him. But if you have believed in the Lord Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or, or somewhere else, is of no importance. What's of importance is if you've placed your faith in Jesus, and if that's the case, if you've been reconciled to God through the blood of his son, 
then we invite you to this table. The second thing we remember is that we're, not, we're instructed not to partake of these elements lightly, as if to say they represent the cross of Jesus and the price that was paid for our forgiveness, and that we would then just partake of them and not bring our lives under the examination of the Holy Spirit. So let's take now a few moments in prayer as uh, our team will play over us. We just take this time now to ask God and hold our lives for him and say, what do you wanna change? Where is there sin in me that needs to be confessed and repented of so that I might walk in righteousness? And we just wait on the Lord here together for a few moments and then we'll partake of the elements together. So let's pray.